Improving the well-being of teenage girls is always a goal for parents and educators. While many girls are positive, kind and strong in their relationships, some girls struggle. Social media has become a strong influence in the lives of girls, shaping the way they communicate and interact with each other and broader society. So how do we improve the well-being of our teenage girls? As educators, how do girls like to learn? And what can we do to further their educational development? My guest today is Linda Stade, the Research Officer at Santa Maria College, an all-girls school in Perth. Linda has worked in various teaching and management roles in education for 25 years. She has worked in government and private schools, country and city, single gender and co-ed. Through her Santa Maria education blog and Facebook page, Knowing Girls, Linda shares valuable information on the latest research relating to educating and raising girls. It's a hot and sunny spring day here in Perth, and I'm at the beautiful campus of Santa Maria College in the suburb of Atterdale, and I'm joined by Linda Stade. Linda, thanks for joining me. You're welcome, and thanks for the invitation. Linda, can you tell us about your unique role here at the college as the research officer? What does it entail? I'm very lucky, Tracy. I am, as you said, the research officer, and I work closely with the college management team researching new educational developments or programs that they'd like to introduce and make sure that they're best practice. I also work in the community relations department, working on parent engagement. Um, that includes writing a blog. Speaking of your blog, that's how I first heard of your work. On your blog, you published an article called Girls and Their Frenemies. Mm. You said that in reality, the more likely destructive influence on an adolescent girl's day-to-day -day life is the damage they do to one another in their friendship groups. What's going on? I think anybody who works with girls or who has girls knows that the friendship issues that they experience in adolescence can be completely heartbreaking for them. And often the effects of those um, conflicts carry on late into life. Linda, you've worked in all boys education and co-ed education. This article is specific to girls and you mentioned the term relational aggression. Can you tell us what is that? Relational aggression is what we call in layman's terms mean girl behaviour or straight up bitchiness unfortunately. Um, it's a pattern of behaviour that you often see in school age girls but it's not exclusive to them. You see it in adults as well. In fact, where do teenage girls learn it from if not from adults? You've probably experienced relational aggression yourself. You know it when it happens to you. It really stings. It's when people hurt you with your relationship with them, which sounds a bit complicated, but um, it's things like exclusion, gossip, when you get the silent treatment, or belittling, and belittling is often hidden with, oh, I'm just joking, and conditional friendship. So young girls will experience that deep knowledge that if I don't go along with the group, I'm going to be on the outer and I'm going to be excluded and I need to go along with it. And that's why sometimes you see very nice young girls behaving quite poorly. I often think of relational aggression as using your relationships as a weapon. It's got nothing to do with friendship, 
and it's got everything to do with power. Do you think this is specific to girls and adolescent girls? I think it's becoming less and less so because there's more intolerance of violence in our community. And in the past, boys used to use um, physical aggression or humour um, or athletic ability as a way of um, creating their niche in a social structure. And that's become less acceptable. So by all accounts, boys are becoming much better at relational aggression. So why do girls specifically practice this type of behaviour in their relationships? I think as adolescents start to move away from their parents as their main influence and their significant adults and move towards their peers, that sorting out of where they fit and who they are in relation to their peers becomes very important. Girls use social interaction as a way of sorting that out much more than boys do. So I think that's why. You use the term frenemy. <laughs> Who or what is a frenemy? A frenemy is a blend of a friend and an enemy. <laughs> They're someone who's a friend who treats you badly and uses you to boost themselves up. It has nothing to do with friendship. Why is inclusion so important to girls? Again, that attachment thing, moving away from adults and moving towards kids. They worry about their self-definition a lot and they ask themselves questions like, am I in, am I out? Am I balanced, am I unbalanced? And so um, that's why all of these sort of relationships and dysfunctional relationships can occur. Girls are masters of communication and socialisation, so perhaps they're just drawing on innate skills that they have. Absolutely. You made an interesting point in the article, and, I, and to quote, girls learn from a very young age that when you create exclusion, you create inclusion. I find that such an interesting point. Can you, can you talk about that for us? Kids think in very black and white. They polarise. Um, they don't understand the grey areas. So they do think in terms of I'm in or I'm out. And if you're out, then I'm in. So <laughs> that sounded very complicated. Did it make sense? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, um, it's as clear cut as, as that. It's quite interesting to think that by excluding, I'm including. Yes. And girls have mastered that skill. Mm. And it's really important not to be excluded. So sometimes they'll go along with behaviour they don't believe in and disappoint themselves even by the behaviour that they'll go along with in order to be included. Linda, that leads to my next point. Santa Maria College psychologist Jane Carmignani says that kids often know that what is happening is wrong but they don't have the language and confidence to stop it. And even when they are the one being the mean girl, that girls often show remorse for their mean behaviour. So why do they keep going? Well, first of all, not all of them do. Many will stop as soon as you encourage empathy in them and ask them to walk in the shoes of the person they're being mean to. Some will back off and, and not persist. But for the others, I think it comes from a place of fear. It's a fear of not belonging or not being good enough. When you have this situation here at Santa Maria or indeed just in your experience, what strategies do you use to counsel girls to behave more appropriately, to behave in a kinder, more compassionate way? 
any teacher will tell you this is a really difficult thing to tackle and you need to be really skilled and using school psychologists, having that um, resource to draw on is really useful. But if you can get kids together in a safe space and talk about, well, how is this making you feel? Then sometimes, and each person has to hear how the other person is feeling. That works, but it needs to be monitored. You have to hold kids to um, a high account and make sure that you check up on them often afterwards that they are going forward with the agreements of good behaviour that they've promised. Um, I think though it's more useful or more effective to start a culture in a school that is against that sort of behaviour. You know, we need to be explicitly teaching kids empathy. There seems to be a gap in our so young kids' social skills at the moment in empathy. And I think that's really important because when they see it and you explain it to them, they do understand it. It's just that constant drip, drip, drip reminder that we need to be empathetic, we need to be kind. Um, I think also naming it need to be able to say this is what relational aggression is and this is what it looks like and this is how it feels. Do you recognise that? And they'll all inevitably say yes. And then you can also teach them their personal responsibility in all of that. So you can teach kids to be upstanders who are the people who say, who stand up for victims. The research shows that if you can stand up to a bully for eight seconds, it is likely that they will back down. Eight seconds is a long time when you're standing up to a bully and we acknowledge that with kids and we role model it and we, sorry, not role model it, role play it so that they've had experience in it. Then rewarding kids for that sort of brave behaviour is important too. Um, distractors, we need to teach kids to distract. It's a, it's a skill that we have as adults. We know when an awkward situation's coming up and we'll change the subject or we'll cause movement or move along so that it doesn't happen. And teaching kids that is, is possible, you know. It's, if we can teach it to them earlier, it'll save them a lot of grief. And supporters, even if kids aren't strong enough to be upstanders or aren't quick enough on their feet to be distractors, they can be supporters. And that might just mean making eye contact with a child who's having a bad time and letting them know you're not alone, I see you and I understand. In an ideal world, you would be able to teach them very clearly what friendship is and what a good friend is. Unfortunately, I think we've got the term friendship and, and butchered it a bit because in, in children's early years, we often say, everyone has to be friends. Everyone has to play together. Everyone needs to be friends. Um, consequently, friendship ends up meaning obligation and it doesn't necessarily mean the things that you and I mean when we say friendship, which is loyalty, support, shared interests, shared values. That's not what kids understand as friendship at that stage. It's difficult for parents who have daughters of this age. What advice can you give parents when they have a situation where their daughter comes home and has experienced bullying or exclusion or any of the other number of things that can happen. What advice do you give parents? When they come home upset like that, 
we need to sit with them and their emotions and they need to be able to name it. What am I feeling? How does it feel? And we need to acknowledge that that's happened. I think the trick is in not overreacting because the more you overreact, the more you make it worse than it is. I think if we can then get them into the gentle rhythms of our family lives and the safe rituals and the safe routines we have, that will settle them. Parents running in to save their children, I don't think is a great idea. Sometimes it gets to an extreme and you have to do that and work with the school in order to overcome those problems. But kids will have conflict with their peers and the more parents rush in or teachers and separate kids, put them in different classes and all of those sorts of things that we tend to do, the less chance kids have to learn the skills of resolving this sort of conflict. It's a very difficult area to deal with, isn't it, Linda? And it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. Absolutely not. The, the solution for one child might be completely different to the solution for another. And I can't give you a piece of advice that is going to work in every case. If we could do that, it would have all been solved long ago and this wouldn't be a problem. Let's move on to another article you wrote on your blog called What If My Child Becomes the Bully? We don't often think about this one. The focus is more often on the child being bullied, but carrying out bullying behaviour or being a bully can actually negatively impact a teenage girl's development, can't it? Yes. Um, research shows that kids who bully um, tend to be more unhappy at school, um, they have lower levels, levels of engagement at school, poor academic achievement, higher levels of truancy, difficult behaviour. Um, increased chance of getting in trouble with the police and school um, and certain um, mental health problems and disorders are more prevalent in, in children who bully. So what makes kids bully each other? Why would a child become a bully? There are tons of reasons why a child would become a bully. Um, bullying can be a social shortcut. It's a way of getting what you want quickly. And for a child who hasn't got well-developed social skills, that's an easy way of achieving their, their <laughs> desires, I suppose. Um, that said, lots of bullies have really highly advanced social skills because they've learned already um, how to recognise strengths and weaknesses in others and how to play on those. Um, bullying can happen in the home and kids learn from what they see. When I was talking about the social problems of kids who have bullying, it's very hard to separate whether those problems are caused by the bullying itself or from the home environment that they're coming from. It's important to look at what's valued at home when you're looking at bullying, because kids can completely misconstrue things. If parents model that you're good when you're in control or you're a leader when others are scared of you or you're popular when you're feared or you're popular when you are exclusive and, and exclude other people, then children can sometimes live those ideas out in bullying and not understand some subtleties of it. A child who's bullied is more likely to bully themselves. They've learned from the master. They've seen how it worked on them. So they're, 
it's likely that they will go on to bullying. Not always, obviously, but it's more likely. Uh, neglect can cause bullying. Children fighting for attention, any sort of attention. Unfortunately, in that sort of case, often the punishment for it will be, well, I'm gonna neglect you more, go away. And so that sort of cycle keeps going on. I think also in popular culture, there's a lot of bullying on television. Kids' drama is quite interesting when you watch it on TV. There's, um, there's only so many forms of conflict and drama that you can create for 10, 11, 12-year-olds on television. So often bullying behaviour is part of that, and I see it a lot. But, yeah, the, also bullying is a way of fitting in. When we were talking about frenemies, being included means sometimes excluding others. No child wants their... No parent, rather wants their child to become a bully. What can we do to ensure that children don't grow up to be bullies? Again, name it and shame it. Right from the beginning, you need to create a culture that bullying is not acceptable in our family. It's, it's one of those things we don't do here. Um, I think you need to explain what bullying is, say what it is, give examples of it. You know, a bully is someone who forces other people to do things that they don't want to do. A bully is somebody who um, hits other people. A bully is someone who takes or breaks other people's property. And these are all very simplistic versions of bullying, but then I'm talking about very young children. Um, some psychologists recommend having those things written around the house and those sorts of things, just so it's really reinforced constantly. Clear boundaries and positive attention are really important in most parts of, of um, educating kids or bringing up children. That doesn't mean ignoring your child's negative behaviours, it's just kids respond to clear boundaries and predictable consequences. Develop empathy in children. If they can understand how somebody else feels, then they're less likely to treat them poorly. And with little kids, you can start with pets and siblings. How does, you know, how does the dog feel when you pull its tail? That sort of thing. And obviously as they get older, that, that questioning can broaden to friends and teachers and even strangers on the news or on, in TV dramas, you know, how might that character feel? But it's something we teach. It doesn't come naturally to all people. Don't ever look past bullying. We condone what we walk past. So when you walk past bullying or see it and don't say anything in your children, you're saying to them, that's okay with me. And I think it's really important that we don't do that. Internet use has become a much bigger problem with bullying. Never let your kids have their internet in their bedrooms where they can't be monitored. Um, so much of what used to happen in the playground now happens on the internet and it's 24 seven. So I think it's really important to disconnect kids, not all the time, but to monitor them when they are on the net and give them lots of time disconnected. I think it's important to remember here that with a bully, it's not a good thing for the bully. As parents, we might think, oh, well, my child's top dog, therefore they're okay. At least they're not the one being bullied. But as you said, there's negative impacts on the bully as well. Mm. They're often very isolated. Kids aren't silly. They know who's hurting them. So they will, you know, go along with certain behaviours. But when it comes time to choosing who they want to spend time with, they're not going to choose a bully. So it can be very isolating. 
Linda, you outlined the importance of parents working with the school. Why is this an important step? Look, if the school approaches you and says that your child's bullying, there's a very good chance that it is happening. It's really hard to tell a parent that their child's being a bully. So they don't do it lightly. And I think it is something that parents would take seriously if they were approached in that way. Um, if you argue with the school about the behaviour, particularly in front of the child, you're telling the child to carry on. Um, in the long run, that does your child no favours. Schools do make mistakes, um, but they see your child for six hours a day, six or seven hours. So they do have an idea of what's going on and it's important to work with them. Linda, when it comes to social media, what do girls need to know? It's important that they know that there are people out there who don't have her best interests at heart. Uh, early, early adolescents have a real disconnect here. They, they hear you say that people might be watching them or want to take advantage of them, but deep down they don't really understand it. There's no easy solution here, is there? We can't just ban social media. Absolutely not. And you wouldn't want to. There are lots of good things about social media. Yes, because it is a huge issue and we won't have time to go into a lot of detail today. But Linda, can you just give us uh, some simple practical strategies that parents and indeed students can be aware of? For parents, um, the Office of the Children's eSafety Commissioner was established about 12 months ago and it's a new government office that um, provides young people with online safety education. Um, they also intervene in serious cases of cyberbullying. So I'd highly recommend to parents to go and have a look at their website because there are terrific resources there. In terms of a really simple strategy for talking to kids about what they post online, is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Linda, I'd like to finish today on focusing on your article, What Girls Want. Can you tell us through your research, how do teenage girls want to learn? We had a forum recently where we talked to a large group of our girls about how they like to learn. So the points I'll make are a combination of what the girls told us and, and what I know of my own experience in teaching girls. I find that girls like narrative. They love a story. They like to see the links between ideas and facts and events. And if you can present a concept loosely as a story, girls will engage with the content much better. So I find that works. Um, girls like to work collaboratively and they tell us that every day. And I think it's important because they get to share their ideas in small groups and get that approval that girls often need in order to um, heighten their confidence. And then they can share them with a bigger group. But that collaborative work really works for them. Girls are really task orientated. As a teacher moving from a boys school, then coming here straight to a girls school, I got a shock about at the amount of content girls will get through in a, in a period because they like to get things done. Sometimes they may, that means they don't go into things in enough depth, but they do like to get things done and achieve tasks. Girls like very clearly structured notes and they tell us that. The challenge with that for me comes with the fact that life isn't that simple. 
you don't get all the instructions and then sit the test and move on to the next thing. Learning is like life, it should be a bit more unstructured and undirected and messy. We provide project-based learning at our school to challenge the kids and make sure that they do do that messy learning with lots of challenges popping up rather than just here's the notes, learn it for the test, as much as they'd like us to just do that sometimes. Girls are often visual learners, but I think that's kids generally these days. We've got such a screen culture that kids do learn better visually or, or more quickly visually, but I think we need to provide them with lots of other types of learning as well. I think that's the challenge in, in this screen era. How do girls vary in their learning? I find that girls like to get the right answer and please their teacher. And that's problematic as they get a bit older because there isn't always one right answer. So we need to be role modelling for girls that there's often lots of ways of approaching a problem and lots of different you know, ways of getting to an answer. So that sort of learning needs to be um, increased for girls, role modelled for girls and um, rewarded in girls, you know, thinking outside of the box. Girls are a bit prone to fear of failure, especially at the top end. You might have heard of the um, Wimbledon Girls' School in England that now has a failure week. So they set their girls up to fail for a week so that they can learn the skills of failure. And they learn that failure is a learning tool that's a way forward. And I think that's really good and I'd really like to see more of that here because we do find that girls have a fear of failure and it can be quite debilitating and stop you take the learning risks that you need to take. Girls love nice learning spaces. When you teach girls, you know that they like to colour things and make things pretty and present their work in a particular way. They tell us also that they like classrooms to be like that. They like colour and light. Um, so I think that's just an extension of what they like for themselves, they like in their classrooms. But ultimately, I think the biggest thing with girls is that they're relationship-based. They need to trust their teacher and they need to feel liked. And they respond much better if they feel that the teacher has confidence in them and they have confidence in the teacher that the teacher cares about them. And under those sorts of circumstances, I think girls tend to thrive. You said that girls often underestimate their ability. How so? Well, we find that when we offer specialist programs, particularly maths and science, girls underestimate their ability. There are far more talented girls than there are people who put themselves forward for talent programs. Again, the challenge here is to provide lots of risk-taking opportunities where they have a go. It's, is part of this social conditioning? I think so, yes. And they don't want to be put in a situation where they'll feel shame. Or embarrassment and taking a risk potentially puts them in that situation but it stifles their learning. There was an interview on ABC News Breakfast this morning talking about new careers and the guest was saying that in a job application 
a, a man or a boy, if you like, might only have one of the skills required of the mm. ten and he'll apply. Yet a girl might have seven and think, oh, well, I don't have all ten, therefore I won't apply. Mm. Absolutely. And that starts at a very young age. Some research shows that by grade two, girls underestimate their ability compared to boys. And finally, Linda, what should teachers always remember when they are teaching girls? That girls like to be liked. Like all of us, they want to be heard and respected and they want a positive relationship with teachers. Ultimately, your research here at Santa Maria College, where is it taking you? What, what is your goal through your blog, through your work here at the school? I really want to see more parent engagement rather than involvement. We involve parents in jobs in schools and we get them to come into events and things, but we don't engage them in educational issues, um, educational best practice. We don't talk to them about the wellbeing issues that affect kids in their adolescence. And I think that's really important that we work together. Schools are supposed to be a partnership between parents and teachers and often I think we don't involve parents enough in that sort of conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's, it's been great. Thanks, Linda. Thanks for having me. And I hope you enjoyed my interview with Linda Stade, the research officer at Santa Maria College in Perth. If you would like to follow Linda's blog, visit the Santa Maria College website or check out her Facebook page, Knowing Girls. Links are provided in the episode description. This podcast was produced by Tracy Burton, featuring music by Paul Cusick. Thanks for listening.